0: The real work isn't taking place when we're gathered. Mm. The real work's taking place when we're scattered. Just like the real excitement of the football game is not the halftime talk, it's what's going on on the field. There are a lot of people out there that are really bored. It's because they've somehow been told the halftime talk, that's the main bit. And actually, that's only the preparation for the main bit.
1: Hi, everybody. This is Simon Giller with Inspired. There's so much bad news out there and we want to counteract that with great news of of stirring stories, of triumphant faith, of overcoming, of hanging on in there, of perseverance, of creativity. And there are so many uh, different journeys that we've highlighted in the last number of months. And uh, I'm really excited today to have a fantastic guest with us. And that is Dr. Krish Kandaya, um it's, it's hard to know what to say about Krish. I mean, we've connected a few times over the years. I think it was at uh, Summer Madness speaking, that might have been about 10, 15 years ago, I don't know. And then uh, again at uh, Spring Harvest, but Krish is a social entrepreneur, broadcaster, speaker, consultant. When I look at your, um, your website, Krish, it's, yeah, it is hard to know. I think a lot of us would know you for uh, the book paradoxology you've written a number of books but that was an absolute cracker and then krish was the founder of homes for good which is a charity working to make a real difference in the lives of vulnerable children by finding loving homes for for children in the care system there's there's loads more to say i mean I, i'd love to touch on your recent venture which is sanctuary foundation helping to coordinate hosts with uh, ukrainian refugees there's so much that you're involved in in terms of teaching at various uh, universities and stuff like that but Listen, Krish, why don't we just um, crack in? Well, actually, yesterday I was, I was looking at your TEDx talk, Can Hospitality Change the World? And hmm. I thought we'd start there just because, in that, you talk about your father. So that gives a chance for us to unpack sort of your roots and family backgrounds. So, so where <laughs> yeah. did it all start?
0: Oh, well, um, I was born in Brighton. Mm-hmm. And uh, my mother was born in India. My father was born in Malaysia. My father's father was born in Sri Lanka,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and my mother's father was born in Ireland. So I- I'm I'm not quite sure where it all started. It- it's a pleasure to speak with you, Simon, and uh, looking forward to <laughs> exploring. You-, you can help me kind of work out who I am and where I'm from in this <laughs> particular, particular.
1: So in that in that you showed a picture of your of uh, an indian man and a, mm. a british uh, a white guy uh, next to i think it was a tiger who'd and and it yeah. wasn't a trophy kill is the fact that that guy had been mar- the, the tiger had been marauding through the village and i suppose the expectation because you're um i'm brown you're brown <laughs> what's the correct term uh, so right, you said right. the question who's the dad and actually your dad was the, was the british guy but you said he was a real man of integrity wasn't he yeah, yeah, yeah. This is my granddad in India. and
0: um, So he he was a crack shot with a rifle. And when there was a marauding tiger, he was the one that was called in uh, to sort it out. And he ended up uh, signing up for the Indian army and uh, died in El Alamein in North Africa, uh, providing covering fire for his troops. Uh, he won a, a military cross for that. So because my mother was mixed race her and her sisters were taken into an orphanage even though they had a living mother Uh, and my mum told me pretty horrific stories of what it was like growing up in an orphanage Uh, I had always had a plan that one day uh, when my wife and I had done our best to help the foster children in our care and you know sort out as best we could the UK care system uh, we would retire into somewhere else in the world and run an orphanage Um, but Weirdly, the penny never dropped. That my mother had had a terrible time in an orphanage, mm. and it, it took, took a long journey actually for me to realize that orphanages are just not a great way for anyone to be helping children, uh, that we need to be helping kids stay in families. But anyway, that's a digression because. Uh, My mum grew up in this orphanage and it ended up being her uh, grand-aunt that reunited the family, brought them to the UK. Uh, My mum ends up uh, training to be a nurse in Brighton. Uh, That wasn't without its challenges. It wasn't a very multicultural space, uh, Brighton in the 1950s and Mm -hmm. 60s, and, uh, you know, faced a lot of racism, actually, that white patients wouldn't let my mother touch them because they thought that she was somehow dirty or broken, and uh, asked for a white nurse to come in instead, mm-hmm. and uh, it was really tough for her, but she she launched this one-woman resistance campaign, uh, which was to open up her house on a Friday night, cook up a massive vat of curry and rice, and invite anyone that felt like they didn't fit in uh, to come Fabulous. and have dinner, and that's how she met my dad, and the rest is history. And that was that driven by her faith? Well, she had a really interesting faith. Uh, Her faith was really knocked by the fact it was nuns that were running the orphanage that she grew up in, and they were pretty brutal. So she had to sleep, uh, you know, face up with her hands in a prayer-like position. And if she didn't, she got her feet whacked with a cane. So... Can you imagine that? Someone controlling the posture that you have when you're sleeping. Yeah. Um, so that really kind of had a massive negative influence on my mother's faith. If she 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 kind of hated institutionalized religion for a long time after that. She, because she'd had an experience of institutional care run by institutional religion. So you could see why she might become uh, anti institutional. And um, so it, my mum came to faith very late in her life. Um, had helped me a little bit as a as a young person learn to pray uh she didn't believe in institutional religion but ta- taught me to pray and that was part of my own spiritual journey
1: and um again the tedx talk you talk you share some of the beautiful well, stories of uh, her taking in sort of people you wouldn't really think was wise <laughs> yeah yeah
0: my mum was brilliant so um I, you know one of my favorite stories is uh, we, we get a knock at the door. it's late at night and um, I'm, I'm a teenager I'm pretending to do homework but I'm probably watching TV and uh, my mum gets to the door first, she opens the door and there's this huge guy filling up the door frame and he says, "Oh hello, I can't remember her name now. you know does, does Katie live here?" And my mum goes no." And he says, oh, look, I'm looking for Katie. I've just arrived into the UK from Germany into Gatwick Airport. And I was chatting to this girl on the plane. And as I was going through customs, after we'd said goodbye, I realised I had something to declare. It's my undying love for Katie. (laughs) But I don't know... Where she lives, and this is way before mobile phones or Twitter or Instagram or whatever. Uh, so all he knew was she lived in Brighton. So he was going door to door in Brighton trying to find Katie. Mm-hmm. And um, I would have thought that was creepy enough to slam the door and you know lock it as many times as we could. But my mother goes, "Well, you better come in then." <laughs> so she
1: cooks. Beautiful.
0: You know she makes him a nice cup of Indian tea, and he tells more of his story. And before we know it, he's sleeping in our lounge. Uh, which is great for him but bad for me because my bedroom was opposite the lounge and um, <laughs> I, as a teenager I'd take every bit of furniture that I can move and i build a barricade and i get under my duvet and I've got my Swiss army knife out for protection. I don't know why it didn't occur to me that if he tried my door and couldn't get in he'd probably go upstairs you know and, and, and cause some bother up there but anyway I was must have been very narcissistic and um, selfish back then but Anyway, I wake up the next morning, I haven't cut myself with my Swiss Army knife, and I managed to uh, de-barricade my door, and <laughs> I can hear snoring from the front room. The German guy is still there. All our you know, valuables, however small they were, are still there too. And um, you know, my mum cooks him a big breakfast and sends him on his way. And, and I, I've got this romantic belief that there's this German-English couple out there somewhere that when they tell the tale of how they got together... They talk about the hospitality of a little Indian woman from Brighton called June, but she Beautiful. really modelled to me yeah. just radical hospitality, and it has been a you know defining theme of my life and my family's life, you know, ever
1: since. Yeah, it's your inherited DNA, isn't it? Um, did it ever spectacularly backfire? You know, it didn't
0: really. I mean, I mean, there were, well, maybe there were door to door salesmen that knew my mum would kind of basically <laughs> say yes. So I think we bought this massive, I mean, who buys a carpet from a door-to-door salesman, right? And she opened it up and it was all like, you know, little bits, offcuts that were no use to anybody. But So yeah, you're right. Sometimes people could take advantage of you. But in general, no, that was probably the worst thing that happened to us.
1: So what was your journey then to faith?
0: So my mum's teaching me to pray. And, um, you know, a few of the Bible stories are there. I've got this... A uh, friend of my mother's, who's, who's Auntie Sue, she's not really an uh, an auntie, but she's kind of bought me and my sister a Bible because she wants us to kind of know something about her faith. But it was it was one Sunday afternoon, and I heard what I thought was an earthquake going on outside my house, and I look outside the window, and it isn't an earthquake; it's the big bass drum of a Salvation Army marching band. <laughs> wow and uh, when you're a small boy that is the coolest thing that you've seen in a long time so <laughs> out I go and uh, I, I just am you know bewitched by a brass band that's marching up and down our hill and you know I, I asked my mum if I could go wherever they were from and turns out there was a little Salvation Army church round the corner from us and so I started to go to Sunday school and I remember one Sunday um, in, in the kind of way that the Salvation Army used to do, they, they encouraged you that if you wanted to give your heart to Jesus, and I wasn't quite sure about how organ donation to a spiritual figure worked, but, mm-hmm. you know, I, I thought, yep, yeah, great, I think I understand something, that he died for me, and I'm going to respond to what I understand, and so out I went, and the Salvation Army had this thing at the front of the, even in the, the Sunday school, called a mercy seat, Which is where you would go and you'd kneel and you'd you'd ask for God to come and forgive you and kind of you know help you rebuild your life and uh, a little Salvation Army lady with her uniform and little bonnet on kind of would come and kind of counsel me at the front there and I don't think I fully understood it all but um, that was important to me and then I go to secondary school a few years later and I meet this lad And he had been at a John Wimber event. He was a a charismatic uh, evangelist Mm -hmm. uh, at the Brighton Centre. And he stands up, this lad stands up at the front of the class after the teacher had nipped out to have a quick smoke, leaving 30 teenage boys in charge of a (laughs) chemistry lab. Really bad idea. And he says to the class, he says, "Look, look, something amazing happened to me last night. I became a friend of God. And, um, you know, it, it's amazing. It's the most amazing thing I can tell you about. And I want you to know about it too. If you've got any questions, come and see me. And and I thought that was,
1: yeah. I
0: suppose, equally the stupidest and bravest thing I'd ever seen it's anyone so do. So, brave,
1: yeah.
0: so I go up to him afterwards and said, look, you know, it sounds like you're new to this Christianity thing. I've been doing it for a while. It's, it's private and personal. You don't talk about <laughs> it. It's just between you and God. And... This lad Steve, he says, Chris, if you knew the God that I met last night, you wouldn't be able to be quiet yes. about it. And I'm like, okay, tell me more. That's not what I know. I've, I've, I've got something, but it doesn't seem to be what you've got. Mm. And he's explaining this radical relationship with God, and I've got, I've got Christianity. I've, I've got a really, you know, thin grasp of the Christian message, but he's got living relationship, and I'm, I'm in, right? So, I, you know, I want what he has, and he kind of talks me through it a little bit more and um, then we think okay this is great you know if god really does want to forgive us if jesus really did die on the cross if he really did come back to life again then uh, the world needs to know about this so me and steve we divide the class into two he takes all the children whose surnames are a to l and i take m to z and we're gonna try and tell him about it and we were the worst people in the world at this I-, I was relatively strong. I played rugby and um, I was small but strong and would use that physical strength to challenge lads to kind of think about God. And um, (laughs) I, I learned the hard way how not to help people encounter Jesus. But... did they did raise a lot of questions so they kept saying things like you know how do you know the devil didn't write the bible and what about science and did jesus really rise from the dead and so that drove me back to actually read the bible that auntie sue had given me and i'm suddenly got my yellow highlighter pen and i'm highlighting all the good bits and actually they're only good bits and so so my bible's just soaked in highlighter (laughs) how old are you this day loads of questions i'm 15 and um you know between Me, Steve and some schools workers that were coming to our school, uh, we start up a little Christian group and we're just trying our best to explain what the Christian faith means to us. We made loads and loads of mistakes. We are rubbish at it. But quite a few of our classmates begin to profess faith and something's going on and we get excited.
1: Oh, wow, brilliant. And, well, God bless Steve. Are are you still tracking with him?
0: Yeah, Steve's a pastor with um, what was called New Frontiers. So he's up in Hull. And um, I helped his wife become a Christian when I was at sixth form. She wasn't his wife then. She was just a girl. (laughs) um, She came to faith, which was amazing. We did did a little study in in John's Gospel, I think it was. Each week we'd meet up and try and open the Bible up and understand who Jesus was. And she got it and became a Christian. And they got married and had a son and, uh, you know, been pastors up in the north of England for for a long time now. Wonderful.
1: So was it plain sailing uh, up through sixth form? Well,
0: yes and no. Um, I I had a loving family. I really messed up trying to explain my faith uh, to my my mum and dad. I think my mum, it it did help. She kind of starts to reboot her understanding of God, that it's not just this Mm -hmm. cruel institution that she'd experienced as a child, but there was this living relationship with God. My dad's from a Hindu background, and I, I think I was very arrogant and naive and bossy and you know I made loads of mistakes so I didn't really help him come to faith but he he was open to what was happening to me and and let me express that so that was great I really wanted to go to Russia as a missionary right um because this is before the Berlin Wall was coming down and so I'm I'm reading Russian um, I'm doing Russian um summer camps and you know going and learning Russian and working with a a group uh, called Agape that were doing little trips to help teenagers experience cross-cultural mission. You know, really passionate. I'm going, okay, I want to study Russian and philosophy at university. And my dad's like, no way, you'll never get a job in that. Uh, You need to study a science. And I'd read the bit in the Bible about being, uh, honouring your father and mother. And I thought, you know what, maybe I better obey on that one. So I decide I'm going to study chemistry, mm-hmm. and that that was the kind of next phase of my life. I go to university. I meet my now wife. Um, I did study Russian in my spare time. Carried on going to Russia in summer uh, camps and, and mission trips. And um, Berlin Wall comes down. Don't need my chemistry degree to be a kind of undercover scientist missionary, yeah. uh, but still interested in in what we can do. And. By the time I'm finishing uni and I'm doing quite a lot of work with university students with a group called UCCF or IFES, Mm -hmm. we think students might be a good place for us to work because that's, that's our experience and maybe we could be useful. And we end up going to Albania Um, that was our first deployment Mm -hmm. Um, and I said oh but I speak Russian already and they said well if you only go to countries that you speak the language of that's going to be quite limited and I thought okay fair point so Albania had been the most atheist country in the world Mm -hmm. that banned all forms of religion Mm -hmm. you couldn't even call your son John you couldn't have a beard because
1: that was a religious sign and we think okay maybe maybe we could be useful there. I've done some ministry in Albania and uh, that my favourite statistic is that in 1991, so at the end, just oh. before the revolution, there were 24 cars in the whole country. <laughs> Isn't that mind-blowing? That's, good. that's the nut yeah. statistic. Um, yeah, and we, so we stayed with literally the first, um, um, Cara Lee, Loring, we say the first female driver in the whole nation. I mean, that's just bizarre. Oh, wow. It was yes yeah, so wow, close wow. and then it massively opened Very up, good. didn't it? and uh, did. yeah so um chemistry you've also got degrees in missiology and theology um yeah so uh, chemistry i mean i suppose you're glad you did chemistry just because that meant you met your wife um and went to- <laughs> that
0: was definitely the best bit of yeah. chemistry uh, did she, uh, did some she... chemistry
1: with my wife <laughs> did she uh, know what she was getting herself into
0: yeah uh a little bit i mean no no one fully knows what you get yourself into sure I, I was really involved with the christian union we ran a, a big kind of bible study group for people who wanted to explore faith and loads of first year students were running you know studies to help introduce people to jesus through the gospel of john and we had like hundreds of students doing that and she got involved with that and we started dating just as she left to go to uh, Germany for a year out, so our our romance was epistolary, you know, we would just write to each other, uh, which is probably good for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, we we got married uh, after the end of uni and we then went and were missionaries together in Albania. How long was that for? We were there for three years and our job was to kind of set up an Albanian-run student movement. So... Uh, we had to build a board, we had to um, train up Albanian national staff and um, there is still a student movement in Albania yeah. you know by the grace of God. Uh, they've been doing fantastic work. Um, one of the students that came to faith before we arrived actually in Albania uh, ended up leading the movement and doing a, an amazing job. Um, and it's you know it's just wonderful to see what God's been doing there.
1: Hmm. Any key story from that time to share? Albania? Hmm. Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah, we made every mistake in the book. We were 20-somethings trying to, you know, lead a group of university graduates, um, working with a cross-cultural team of Brits, an American, and an Albanian. I'm pretty sure we made every mistake that we could have made. And I, I guess one of the reasons I ended up studying missiology was a little bit of a sense of despair at what had happened on the mission field. Mm-hmm. So... Albania, as we said, was one of the most atheist countries in the world. And when it opened up, everybody went to Albania. And there was every flavour of Christian denomination you could imagine. Mm. I think there was something like 11 Baptist churches in Tirana. and, you know, there was the first Baptist church and, and they're like the moon landing team, aren't they? They're the ones who get the flag in first and go, right, we're the first ones. Mm. And then there was a breakdown with the first Baptist church. And there was a kind of charismatic group that wanted to become the spirit Baptist church. Then yeah, oh there was a group that were annoyed with the spirit Baptist church for not doing enough Bible. And so there was the word and spirit Baptist church, and, yeah. you know, and then every other group was there and, you know, my wife ended up running the Albanian Literature Centre and every book that had been translated into Albanian was in this literature centre and, you know, it was a kind of one-stop shop so you could see what was out there. And the bizarre thing was that Everybody had an axe to grind and was publishing books. So there were books against, I don't know, oh, um, young earth creationism or for young earth creationism before there was a, a reasonable commentary on the book of Genesis, or mm. uh, there was books from pretty kind of way out there, fringe theologians before we had some of the, you know, the basic tools that you might actually need to build
1: yeah, theological yeah, depth. And,
0: so. um, And that was really sad. And the sad thing for me was Albania was held up as one of the the best places of missionary unity. And I thought, if this is the best, like what's going on? Um, So what I wanted to do then is to go, okay, look, maybe we need a bit more depth. There's something exciting about activism and being crazy pragmatic and just getting stuff done but maybe we need some depth. And so that's why I wanted to study some more theology. So I did my master's and then my PhD on missiology. And, you know, we need both, don't we? We need yeah. breadth and depth. We need we need people that can go fast and we need people that can go deep and we need those people to work together. And often we separate and people go, oh, we don't need theology, we just need action. Uh, all the theologians, oh, we just need theology, we don't need action. Well, actually you need both. And, you know, you look at the early church and they managed that, didn't they? You look at the incredible rich depth of paul's letters and yet i've never met a a stronger activist on the planet like Mm -hmm. how did he manage it how did jesus manage it so i think that's where the body principle comes in for me that we really need the gung-ho let's change the world activist but we also need the thoughtful reflective um, teachers to kind of work together and when they come together in one person that's great but we still need both of those
1: giftings yeah yeah. And I you mean know, it looks like you're you're embodying and modelling that pretty well yourself. Um so yeah, it's it's crucial, isn't it? Hey, folks, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. I'm loving the response we're getting from across the world. It's it's just wonderful to see how encouraging and inspiring it is being and hitting the spot. Listen, if you are being blessed by it, I'd love it. Basically, this happens under the auspices of our ministry, Great Lakes Outreach, which works in the poorest and the hungriest country in the world, which is Burundi. We're having an incredible impact in the toughest of circumstances. We want to carry on supporting those local folks doing a great job. So if you wanted to greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired you could make a donation there i'd so appreciate it also it's word of mouth isn't it so gossip this these podcasts to other people get them to subscribe give us a great review absolutely wonderful so grateful to you so that's greatlakesoutreach.org forward slash inspired if you want to do a monthly a couple of quid a month or, or a one-off donation we'd be incredibly grateful all right now let's get back to the podcast moving on post Albania where, where did you know was home for good soon after that or, or skipping some years no and it's, it's weird isn't it because you, you look
0: back and I thought okay what am I going to do I wanted to, to to study some more theology and I wanted to do that within a church context I think I think theology is always best done on the run mm-hmm. um, you know Paul didn't spend 20 years in a kind of theological college he was doing his missionary journeys while he's writing. In fact, you know, one theory was God had to put him in prison in order for him to have time to write these beautiful, deep letters. Mm. Um, So he's he's doing it on the run, he's in action. And, And I thought, okay, that could be a good model. And so I ended up working as an assistant pastor while I did my master's and then working as a pastor while I did my PhD. And it was all about mission and you know communicating the gospel and figuring out how to cross some of the cultural divides and the theological divides and I end up going to lecture at um, Wycliffe Hall in Oxford Mm -hmm. and looking back it, it was a very very traumatic time and I hadn't figured out quite why it was But recent revelations about Ravi Zacharias um, make sense of it to me now. Mm. Um, So I was jointly employed by the RZIM, as it was called, Mm -hmm. and Wycliffe Hall, which was a theological college in Oxford, and I was helping to run something called the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics. Mm -hmm. And there was a brokenness about the culture there um, that left me just reeling, actually, I, I... I talk about it in one of my books, obliquely, yeah. um, that I I never had anything like depression, but there was something toxic about the mm. environment, and I couldn't put my finger on what it was, and I was I was not coping well, um, right. and so you know I wasn't at some one stage I wasn't sleeping, I wasn't eating uh, properly. I was in the room but not really present, mm-hmm. and the, the thing that actually really changed me a little bit like studying chemistry was best for me and my wife the best thing that happened out of that season was that we became adoptive parents we'd had three birth kids already we became adoptive parents and that really was the journey that led to to home for good
1: right and had you discussed adopting before getting married yeah we had and apparently lots of people do um you know
0: because most of us recognize there are children um that are out there that don't have families And, you know, we'd we'd talked about it. We'd even talked about the orphanage thing because we were quite young and naive and idealistic about it. Mm -hmm. And and then, you know, life kind of takes over. We end up having children and it went off the back burner um, and, you know, not in our imagination anymore. And then one of my old mentors from uni, uh, who ended up being the head of student ministries at UCCF, him and his wife became foster carers in their 60s. And that really challenged me. They were taking on teenagers in, 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 you know, a a, a, a kind of challenging phase in their lives. Mm. And then I became aware of some of the stats around foster care, um, just how many children needed, you know, loving permanent family, Mm -hmm. and what happens if kids don't get that? They age out of care. They're more likely to be criminalised, exploited, imprisoned, homeless. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we need to do something about that. And somehow, despite finishing a PhD in theology, uh, being a cross-cultural missionary, I'd missed all the bits the Bible had talked about, God being a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows and orphans. Mm-hmm. And looking back now, I can't can't believe how I missed it. Yeah. But we get in these kind of theological ghettos, don't we? These these little tribes where certain things become more important than others, and mm-hmm. we miss some of the big picture ideas and and suddenly these parts of the bible are jumping out at me mm-hmm. and my wife's going well i think we should become foster carers or adoptive parents and that that was how the journey began for us
1: i, I see on home for good's website the big stat straight away they come up with is every 15 minutes a child comes into care in the uk i mean that's mm. just such a bleak thought but um we don't want to sort of just get depressed, do we? And, uh, all it takes for evil to prosper is for good people to do nothing. That was, uh, Yeah, a that's burp, right. Isn't it? So you're, I guess you're just trying to mobilize as many people as possible. You know, give us, a, not a sales pitch, but, you know, give us an sort of exhortation. What, 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 <laughs> what, what can this look like? So, look, the Bible is really clear.
0: What God values in terms of our love and care for him is expressed in how we love and care for others. And if we don't love our neighbour, then we don't love God. The Bible makes that a package deal.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And, you know, too often, our faith is just directed at God. You know, people that are told, you know, close your eyes, and whatever kind of week you've had, just forget about that. Let's just focus on God. I'm going, that is actually sub-biblical Christianity. The Bible never says, close your eyes and just focus on God. It always says, love God, love your Mm neighbour. And, you know, the, the the verse that really hooked me on this whole thing, and, and I'm, I'm always nervous about building a whole theology on a verse, but it's it was a gateway mm-hmm. verse and passage that led me to the rest of what Scripture's been teaching on this, was James 1, 27. Yeah. yeah, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and blameless is to care for widows and orphans in their distress. And you go, okay, hold on. If God was assessing the worship of his people, the top priority – is how we care for the most vulnerable, yeah. and you know, a widow, an orphan, and in the Old Testament, it gets extended to include the stranger. Those, that's the kind of yeah. triumvirate that that gets repeated over and over again, are people that don't have an advocate, that don't have someone that could speak up for them, that's going to take care of them. In the ancient world, in a patriarchal society, a widow uh, had very little rights. It was difficult Mm -hmm. for her to earn a living and to survive without a husband. That was just the way the world was back then. And so widows were vulnerable. God says, I'm going to take care of the widow. I'm going to be like a husband to the widow. I'm going to take them under my wing and care for them. And you see that in a beautiful story like Ruth and Naomi. You know, God really looked after them Mm -hmm. um, in a beautiful way. And then the orphan, you know, an orphan in in biblical language actually doesn't mean a child whose both parents are dead. It just means a child not living under the care of their father. Um, And that idea, again, because in a patriarchal society, that made you vulnerable. Who is gonna who's gonna take you under the shadow of their wing? How is that gonna work out? And God says, look, I, I will do that. I'll be a protector of widows and orphans. Mm-hmm. And the stranger again, uh, as a foreigner in a strange land, who would speak up for you, who would give you shelter, who would show you hospitality? Those are the ideas. So in James 1:27, we're told, you know, that's what religion looks like to God. That's what pure, unadulterated, God-pleasing religion looks like. And and if you if you took that as the benchmark of what our faith needs to express how does that compare with what we often tell people christianity is about you know think about um some of the presentations of the gospel that we give we tell people that it's about having your sins forgiven or going to heaven when you die and you go that's only like a quarter of the story we've missed out so much of it or You know, think about what we actually do when we gather. Most of the time we gather, we're singing songs and we're listening to speaking. And that's important, but only in the way that a half-time football uh, coaching session should be. You know, the the real work isn't taking place when we're gathered. Mm. The real work's taking place when we're scattered. Just like the real excitement of the football game is not the half-time talk. It's what's going on on the field. Mm. So, you know we somehow replaced ritual uh, for righteousness. We've we've swapped doing the work of the kingdom for talking about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we do need to gather, we do need to sing, we do need to pray, we do need to read the Bible, but only in the extent it equips us for doing the actual work. And God tells you what it is. It's to love your neighbour as yourself. It's to care for the widow and orphan. That's what religion is about. So... There are a lot of people out there that are really bored. They're mm-hmm. bored of Christianity. They're bored of the church. It's because they, they've, they've somehow been told the halftime talk, that's the main bit. And actually that's only the preparation for the main bit.
1: Mm. That is really helpful, that analogy. Never heard that before. Brilliant. Um, so you took on, was it, is it you had a six-year-old that came to you initially, is that right?
0: Well, so we had three kids. Our oldest child was six uh, when we... Uh, took on uh, fostering and adoption and our first foster child was a, a brand new baby that had just been born and mum had had a really really difficult life all sorts of terrible things had, had happened to her in her past and that had made it really difficult for her to have the capacity to care for this child and so you know we we did our best to to be foster parents to this little one and uh, after many years of, of attempt to rehabilitate with mum. Uh, We were asked if we would adopt the little one and uh, we became adoptive parents. And uh, in the end, we... Well, now we have six kids that live permanently with us, three that are our birth kids, and then three are fostered and adopted. Uh,
1: So what does family life look like and integrated with faith? (laughs) Yeah, that's a good question, Simon. Um, It's
0: busy. (laughs) Uh, There's always stuff going on. And... You know, unlike movies like Despicable Me and Anna Green Gables <laughs> and Annie, um, it isn't all songs and sunshine. Children that have been brought into the care system have had something terrible happen to them. Yeah. And, you know, even if the child is removed at birth, um, there's a trauma of that separation from your birth family that doesn't really ever go away. And people thinking about fostering and adoption really need to go in eyes open. Mm -hmm. I I spend a lot of my time not persuading people to do it, but warning people how hard it is. I I try to take a bit of approach like the Marines, you know, if you're looking for a a holiday, um, you know, the Marines are not where you go, but if you're looking for a life filled with challenge and meaning, then fostering adoption really is where you want to go because Mm -hmm. you get to be drawn into the world of someone's trauma, and challenge and difficulty but you're doing it because you want to show love and compassion you want to make a difference and it is incredibly exciting but it's incredibly challenging
1: Mm. so at what stage did you found home for good (laughs) Uh, yeah good question so i was oh you're getting into all
0: my history man Mm. the um i was working for the evangelical alliance yeah and i uh Yeah, interesting days. You know, everybody wanted evangelicals to talk about sex and homosexuality and gay marriage. And I thought, you know what? That really isn't my most exciting conversation. Um, You know, where Christians stand on that issue. I I guess someone has to kind of figure that one out. But for me, when the Bible prioritises compassion and care for people in need, that's where I think we ought to be focusing our attention. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, we launched a little campaign. Uh, we, You know, we'd become foster parents and adoptive parents. And we thought, you know what? There are there are thousands of kids that need loving homes. And we did the maths. We worked out uh, when we started this campaign, there were around a shortage of 9,000 foster families and about 5,000 children that were waiting for adoption. Wow. And uh, that's a big number. Yeah. And, and, you know, that was just in the UK. And most of the children waiting for adoption were older. And by older, I mean two or three. Right, um, And a lot of people coming into adoption, see adoption as the third worst way to have a child. It's it, it's normally driven by infertility. So, you know, natural birth's great. And for some people, IVF is, is you know, the second thing you try. And if none of that works, there's always adoption. Mm-hmm. And when you come at adoption through infertility, you really want a brand new baby. And I, I get it, babies are amazing. But the children that are actually waiting are older. And so what I wanted to do is to say, look, this isn't about finding a child to meet your fertility needs. That makes you the center and the child the means to the end. Mm -hmm. Um, What about if we took a a, a Christian approach, which is to put the needs of others ahead of our own? You know, Mm -hmm. that's that's Philippians 2, isn't it? That's, you know, Jesus, the servant king. and and saying you know look not only to our own interest but to the interests of others what what would that look like that's Mm. caring about the widow and the orphan not about my needs and then suddenly a whole bunch of us whether we can have our own birth kids or not whether we're married or single whether our kids have left home or they're in our home, home still we could be brilliant parents for the children that are waiting and um when we thought about it we thought hold on you know 5000 kids waiting for adoption 9000 more foster families evangelical alliance back then was in touch with at least 20000 churches so you know that's just one family per church to become a foster parent or adoptive parent the rest of the church to wrap around them and we could meet the need you know yeah. that's really doable that's mm. not asking everyone to adopt 100 kids that's just one new family per church and that was the the idea that really got the campaign of Home for Good going and it got legs and people began to think this is doable. People started to come forward and say, we've been fostering for ages, but our church hasn't been a help. It's been actually a hindrance. This is great. Maybe the church could get behind us or... Other people thought, you know, we could, we could do this for the first time. And we met millennials who were willing to think maybe adoption would be plan A for us. We won't even try to have our birth kids. We'll adopt first. And I said, well, kids are a gift from God. You do whatever you feel called to do. But sure, we'll support you if that's what you feel you're being called to do. And, and after a while, it was gathering such momentum that we really need to start a charity so it could be its own thing. So that was what year? Oh man, I'm rubbish at dates. It was about, I'd say six years ago, we started the process to become our own charity.
1: Right. And um, I mean, what sort of numbers of kids have you managed to help get integrated into families? That's a really good question. Um,
0: I've learned a lot about um, performance and- Sure. impact measurements since we started. Mm. I, I think in the early days, we just let the world know. We were like a megaphone to the church and we called people to action and people just found their own way to foster and adopt. And, you know, I, I meet people every day. Like I was on the train last week uh, into London and a guy sitting opposite me goes, mate, I, I, I read your name. Uh, I don't know if I had a badge on or he read it on my bag or something. He said, like, you you inspired my parents to become foster parents lovely, and uh, they you know five years ago you, you gave a talk at their church in oxford and you know it's been great watching this little six-year-old now um you know grow up in my family home and, and so we, ha- we have no idea how many people actually stepped forward but it was significant enough that we began to get traction with the government and offer them solutions to how Um, civil society churches and other groups can play their part in finding loving homes for children and Mm -hmm. that's why now i don't i don't work for home for good anymore i cheer them on from afar um but i advise the government on adoption and something called special guardianship that's when kids live with their aunties or uncles or grandparents and i count it a real privilege to be able to try and influence you know government policy to help yeah. every child find the loving home they need yeah
1: i love that so yeah i mean so you're chairman of the adoption and special guardianship leadership board um i love how you are obviously uh, in the secular space as a, but but un- unashamedly christian how, how does how does it work sort of integrating faith in, in that context
0: well in one sense, I had it really easy. I was leading a Christian charity inspiring people into fostering and adoption and actually looking after refugee children who come here unaccompanied. And it was out of that that I got this role in government. So I'd never had to do a big reveal. It was already out there from the beginning. Um, and, and I find um, it, it's, it's a real honour to work alongside people who are different You know, I I work closely with Muslim colleagues or uh, atheist colleagues or Jewish colleagues and it's a privilege and I can be who I am and be open about it. And I can try and show love and respect and kindness to people that I don't share all the same values with. But Mm. we have a common goal. We're all in it because we want children to find loving homes. So we we have overlapping ambition. We have common ground on which we can build. Um, And that's really great fun. I really enjoy that. And it means I can, work, I can work with almost anybody that is willing to put the needs of children first. And you know that, that's the best way I find to be able to collaborate. Do you feel you have to tone down your faith a bit or not? I think there's ways in which you can communicate what you are in a way that makes sense mm-hmm. uh, to people. So um, I often talk about Daniel. Uh, so Daniel is serving King Nebuchadnezzar. And did Daniel agree with King Nebuchadnezzar's politics? I'm pretty sure they were on completely different pages. And yet, Daniel is a very loyal, gracious citizen and civil servant. And I'm not quite a civil servant, but I found ways to express hopefully my faith and my politics in a way that I can work with people that are really different to me. So I don't think I have to turn down anything about who i am i'm just trying to find appropriate ways to build on that common ground
1: Mm. love it i mean i i can can relate on a number of levels i mean again looking at your your website you say you know what you're about you're about helping to solve some of society's seemingly intractable problems through partnerships across civil society faith communities government and philanthropy i am doing that in a similar way in, in burundi um so just a different contexts you know I love it um uh, sort of seeing potential synergies getting groups together creating win-wins um uh, and yeah exactly uh, right it's it, there's so much potential in in well everything is relationship that'd be one of my mantras and obviously you're you're brilliant at getting people behind an idea casting vision at getting buy-in um we're running out of time but I, I, I don't if I've missed out anything I mean I'm sure I have of that you'd really want to share um after this Question. Yeah. Let's talk about it. But okay. one thing I'm, I'm really intrigued by and, and excited by is how you've mobilized people around and you just set up the last few months. Well, it's obviously very recent hot news, uh, Sanctuary Foundation to help coordinate hosts with Ukrainian refugees. Again, it's, it's such a no brainer, but it takes someone really being the mobilizer, catalytic sort of energizer to make things happen. So, so how did that happen?
0: Oh, I'll try and tell it as quick as I can. Um, so back in 2015 when we had the Syrian refugee crisis, I'd I'd had a a little bit of experience working with refugees from Kosovo in the 1990s Mm because of our time in Albania. And again, you never know how these things will all work out. I thought I was going to be a Russian missionary, end up going to Albania, there's a crisis in the country, the Kosovo crisis is going on, come back to the UK, Um, I'm pastoring a church in London, I'm walking down the street and I recognise a language and it's it's some Kosovan people who speak Albanian. And I start speaking to them in Albanian and they nearly jump out of their skin yeah. because I'm brown. Like <laughs> Asian brown people don't speak Albanian. That's <laughs> nuts. Anyway, we end up running a little um, Kosovan a support group for a a few families, maybe 30 families in the area had become as refugees. And we ran language classes for them to keep hold of their Kosovan language, which had been exterminated or attempted to be exterminated Mm -hmm. by people they perceived to be Christians. And, um you know, we ran cultural events, a fabulous evening one night came when we, we put on this party with Kosovan music, Kosovan dancing, and Kosovan food. and our church hall was just full of about a hundred Kosovan people, really sweaty, like, like there was condensation <laughs> all around the windows and uh, some guy comes out of the hall and he says, "Look, I don't understand what's going on here." I'm dancing, I'm having a fantastic time. And on the wall, it says, Jesus is Lord. You mm. know, my understanding of Christianity was the Serbs that were trying to exterminate us Muslim people. But here I am, you've shown us hospitality, what's yeah. going on? And I thought, oh my goodness, that's just a, a little bridge builder, isn't it? That mm. someone mm. can know, not all Christians are trying to kill you. Um, Christians are trying to show you love and compassion. Yeah. Maybe there are different types of Christians and there's there's real Christianity and there's fake Christianity. And, and, and this is a bridge builder, right? Anyway, so it was out of the experience of working with Kosovan refugees in the 90s. I, when uh, the Syrian crisis happened, we thought that there must be something the church could do. We managed to mobilise people to consider becoming foster parents for unaccompanied asylum-seeking children. Mm-hmm. Our government had said that we would take 20,000 over five years. Um, and we thought, well, where are you going to put them? Is there already a shortage of foster carers. So um, we launched a little campaign at Home for Good to get people to do that. 8,000 people signed up for that over a weekend. It was crazy. Um, the government didn't quite know how to make use of that offer. I learned a lot that, you know, y- you can use that that power of numbers to try and persuade government to do the right thing, but in the end, it's, it's their choice. Mm-hmm. So a few hundred people, I think, out of those thousands ended up becoming foster carers, some for I'm Seeking Children. So, you know, praise God for that, but it wasn't the numbers we wanted. And so when three things happened quite close in succession. So I, I stopped working for Home for Good. I started working for the government. I think, what am I going to do for the, the rest of my week? I've only working one day a week. And then the UK opens its borders to 100,000 people from Hong Kong who were coming to the UK in the middle of a pandemic. And I thought, look, there's an opportunity here for the church to show welcome. Mm-hmm. And so we set up something called UK HK. It's still working today, trying to integrate and welcome new arrivals from Hong Kong to mm-hmm. Britain. That was so successful that when the government was trying to evacuate Afghans from Kabul, they said, look, you mobilise the church and civil society on uh, Hong Kong. Could you help us with Afghans? I said, of course we could. So we set up something called Afghan Welcome. And that was a, a bunch of charities coming together to try and support Afghans. And most of those Afghans were... Put into hotels, 11,500 still there in hotels. They needed basics like, you know, pushchairs and prams and a safe place for a child to sleep. They needed someone in the building just to offer them support and help. Hmm. And, you know, churches stepped up to do that and it, it was brilliant. And then a number of weeks ago, the government said that we would uh, welcome people from Ukraine. And they said there would be an uncapped refugee sponsorship programme. And the word uncapped really caught my imagination. That meant for every sponsor we could find, a refugee family from Ukraine could come to the UK. And I knew there'd be appetite for it. Mm. So the best way I could think of influencing government was get people to volunteer for a scheme that didn't exist yet. (laughs) And um, because that would be positive pressure for them to actually do it. Mm. And we had 11,000 people sign up to be sponsors before the sponsorship route was opened. And the government, bless them, opened the route and now 200,000 people, they're not all my responsibility. You know, we just did did our little bit to kind of catalyze um, some of our communities, but it's caught fire. Loads of other people have got on board and, you know, God's doing something, the culture's doing something. And, you know, it's fabulous how many people have been coming forward. And so now we're helping to you know, advise the government, uh, problem solve for the government in in that kind of Daniel way. You know, Mm. Daniel is a wonderful servant and yet he's driven by a passion to serve God. And that's, that's us at Sanctuary. We're trying to mobilize anyone that will listen about how we can offer help and Sanctuary to refugees from Ukraine. And, you know, rather than just get angry on Twitter or wag a finger, yeah. we're trying to find solutions. And it's been amazing. And people have been so generous with their time and their energy. Uh, 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 you know, I am just a small cog in this thing, a yeah. little catalyst. Yeah. And suddenly people are being so generous, so innovative. And, and my job is just to keep, keep things moving along. So, yeah. you know, I just do what I
1: can. Mm. Chris, it's, it's so encouraging. Listen, I think we have run out on time. Um, and uh, I've loved it. I've loved it. Is If people want to be in touch with you, or you, you want to show them what they can uh, check out on, on the web, where, where, what should we highlight?
0: Two things. Uh, first is I'm addicted to Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I am at Chris K on Twitter. Uh, come, come and say hi. Be nice to hear from your listeners, Simon and the other thing is just visit the sanctuaryfoundation.org.uk and uh, there you've got loads of video resources. There's ways that you can register if you wanna show that you wanna welcome a Ukrainian refugee into your house or into your community or through your business or through your church. Uh, Let us know uh, what you're able to do and then we're putting on regular live events um, to help people know how to practically
1: get involved. Wonderful. All right, guys, Action Stations, that's one thing that I really want out of this, and I've seen it time and time again through this podcast. Is people hear, they, there's a, they, they can do something about it, they respond, so let's do it. Dr. Krishkan Dyer, it's been a real treat. Thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Simon. Brilliant. Well, guys, listen, I hope you've been inspired. If you have, I'd love you to give us a top quality review on Spotify, iTunes. Uh, Do pass it on to someone else. Uh, It's so good to hear these good news, challenging stories throwing us to action, isn't it? Listen, if you want to be in touch with me, it's simongilbo.com or any other social media platforms. Um, I want to thank Adam Thomas Steers for the editing and Mike Sandiman for the mixing. You guys have a good week. We'll see you next time. God bless you. Toodaloo.